to Hebrews chapter 13. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. That way you can listen to the Word of God and read it. That gives it double the impact and uh, double the absorption. And so uh, take advantage of that. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. And therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that none of it is in your book needlessly, but that every bit of it is intended to accomplish something important in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we study this, your word, that you'd give us a greater understanding of yourself and of Jesus, and that you would, as a result of that, give us a greater appreciation for you and what you've done for us, Lord, and that it would translate into praise and worship and adoration and obedience all directed toward you. Continue, Lord, to increase our understanding of you and your ways and your call upon our lives and the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, thanking you for Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing tremendous persecution and hardship in their life for the simple fact that they were followers of Jesus, that they had made him their Savior and their Lord, and they were living a life of simple obedience to him. And great persecution came against them as a result of that. And not only were they facing these temptations and and these trials and difficulties, But the trials and difficulties over time began to work on them, and they then became tempted to walk away from their commitment to Christ in order to escape the hardship and the difficulty that they were facing. And beyond that, they were also experiencing a very, very painful rejection by fellow Jews who refused to trust in Jesus for salvation They chose rather to stay with kind of the security of the old ways. And they were calling on these Christians to abandon their Christian faith and come back to their religious roots. And so here these Christians are in a moment of great vulnerability, great difficulty, vulnerability to really maybe give some serious thought 
to that kind of temptation, and it comes to them at exactly the wrong time. And this letter was written to encourage them and to exhort them not to abandon Christ under any circumstances. Not the temptation by those in an old, older religious establishment to pull them away from Christ and back to that, and not anything that the world would meet out against them in terms of difficulty. And in these verses that we look at this morning, the Holy Spirit encourages them and exhorts them and us not to be troubled or to be moved by the rejection of men, whether those men are come against us in, from a religious camp or from a secular camp. We're not to allow them to move us by their rejection because of our faith in Christ. Now, in this vein, in verse 10, he reminded them and he reminds us of our privilege. When he says that we have an altar, it's almost like he raises his voice. This is a sense of privilege. We have an altar that nobody else in the whole wide world has. We have an altar. And the Holy Spirit reminds them that we have an altar that even those who served at the tabernacle and later at the temple, the priests, the Levites, even the high priest, the highest, those that were in the highest positions in Judaism, the most revered positions in Judaism, we have an altar at which they have no right to eat. Why? Because we're better than them? No. But because they, because of their rejection of Jesus as the Christ. Well, what is this altar that the Holy Spirit refers to? Well, I think it's important for us to understand what the altar represented under the Old Covenant, to understand what it is that he's saying here. The altar in the Old Testament was called the altar of burnt offering. It was a good-sized altar, about seven and a half feet wide, about seven and a half feet deep, about uh, four and a half feet high. So you could do some real barbecuing on that. And it was called the altar of burnt offering because it was on that altar that the burnt offerings were offered to the Lord twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And the burnt offering, that offering was is that animal sacrifice after it had been sacrificed was placed upon the fire of that altar. That animal was completely consumed by fire. And it represented the heart of the worshiper, the desire to communicate to God that, God, my life belongs completely to you. It is free for you to use and for you to consume my life however you see fit. I don't want to be in control of my life anymore. I don't want to direct my life anymore. It's yours. You do with it as you see fit. Now, the altar wasn't just used for burnt offerings. It was also used for a lot of different offerings. There was the burnt offering, of course, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings. All of these offerings were offered upon that altar. And when you entered into the courtyard of the Jewish tabernacle and later of the temple, 
You would enter into a courtyard and there would be the tabernacle or the temple in front of you. And the first thing as you entered into that courtyard that you would run into would be this brazen altar, this altar uh, of, of burnt offerings. And so that first thing that confronted you there before you could make your way to the tabernacle, the tabernacle represented the presence of God, was the altar. And it reminded everyone as they approached God that God can only be approached by sinful man on the basis of sacrifice, that our sin cannot be casually ignored, but it has to be faced and dealt with in the way of God's choosing on His terms and not on our terms. Now, those offerings that were offered on that altar, the sin offering, it represented a person's desire to receive the forgiveness of God. The burnt offering, again, representing the worshiper's desire for their life to be completely consecrated to God. God, I not only want to be saved and forgiven, but I want to live a holy life. And then the grain offering was an expression of thanksgiving to God. And it was an expression of thanksgiving to God and an acknowledgement that everything that the worshiper had physically to eat that, that, that gave them physical strength, that all of that came from God. And the peace offering, which was also offered on that altar, it represented the desire of the worshiper to be at peace with God, a desire to have a peace-based relationship with God. Now, when the Holy Spirit declares in verse 10, we have an altar, he's referring to Jesus there, he, refers, he speaks it with great joy, a great sense of praise and celebration. And when he refers to Jesus as our altar, he's referring to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. But he's also referring to all that is ours as Christians because of that sacrifice all that is a part of our life that was never a part of our life before because of our simple trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. In Him, we have a greater sin offering than the sin offering of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sin offering was a means of covering sin. Jesus' death upon the cross, Him is our altar. He has washed our sins away completely. Because of Him, we're not only forgiven, but now we have the power to live a holy life, a life that is fully set aside unto God, which was spoken of by the burnt offering. And God not only takes care of our needs physically, as was represented by the grain offering of the Old Testament, but now Jesus is the bread of life, satisfies every spiritual hunger that we have in our life. No one comes to Christ and says, I've come to put my faith in Christ, and I knew that I was on a spiritual journey. I had spiritual needs in my life. It was 
wine, women, and song, eat, drink, and be merry, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the search in education, and the search in religion for the meaning and the purpose of life, for somehow this great spiritual thirst in my life to be satisfied, I came to Christ, and 80% of that thirst has been taken care of in my life. 80% of that hunger has been satisfied. It never happens. When we come to Christ, the fullness of our spiritual appetite, our spiritual needs are met in Him. And His sacrifice has made available to us further a peace-based relationship with God that the Old Testament saints could only have dreamed of. And so again, we have an altar. We have an access to God through Jesus that even the Levites, even the priests, even the high priest himself under the old covenant did not have because of their rejection of Christ. And so the writer is telling these Jewish believers and us, yes, human rejection is hard, it's painful, but if in order to gain the acceptance of these people, I must walk away from the forgiveness of my sins, the power to live a holy life, the spiritual satisfaction that Jesus brings into our lives, peace in my relationship with God, then that price is way too high. Now notice second in verses 13 through 11 that he reminded them that being faithful to Jesus in this fallen world often results in reproach. It results in rejection and oftentimes being made an outsider in terms of the world's approval or the world's acceptance or the world's applause. And I want you to notice that word outside is used three times in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, outside the camp. Verse 12, Outside the gate, verse 13, outside the camp. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was and is the single holiest day in the Jewish religious calendar, the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed as a sin offering for the high priest and his family, but also for the sins of the nation, they were not burned on the brazen altar. The blood of the sacrifices were applied to the tabernacle and even to the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies. But unlike so many of the other sacrifices as a part of the Old Covenant that were burned upon that altar... It is interesting that on the Day of Atonement, the blood would be taken from the animals, but the, not one bit of the animal would be burned on that altar. The animal was always taken outside of the camp, outside of the boundaries of the tabernacle and later of the temple, and the animals, their bodies would be burned completely outside of the camp. That term outside the camp is used repeatedly in the Old Testament. 
for example, lepers were commanded to live outside of the camp of the children of Israel. Remember when Moses' sister Miriam kind of led a rebellion against Moses and God judged her by smiting her for a short time with leprosy, that she was forced to, as a result of that, to live outside of the camp for a number of days. The Jews, uh, those Jews who became ceremonially unclean due to a discharge or contact with a dead body, they were put outside of the camp until they were made ceremonially clean again. Dung and refuse were always taken outside of the camp. And because of that, outside of the camp was considered to be a place of disgrace. It was a place of rejection. It was a place where you took what was unclean. And the writer reminds us that Jesus suffered and died outside of the gate, verse 12. That is, outside of the gate of the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And the Apostle John makes a great deal of this in his gospel, a great point of telling us that Jesus was crucified near the city. Not in the city, but outside of the city, outside the gate. Why? Why did the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day want him to be crucified knowing that he would be crucified outside of the city walls? It had Old Testament roots it because it was their way of making their utter and complete rejection of Jesus known to the entire Jewish and Gentile world and the strongest language possible. It was their declaration to the whole world that in their estimation they considered Jesus to be unclean, to be refuse, to be garbage, to be dung. And it was their attempt to permanently and irreparably destroy his message and his memory and his reputation. So that from that moment on, in terms of human history, the name of Jesus would forever and always be associated in the minds of people with shame and reproach and a curse, and that forever and ever his life would be an example of what is to be avoided and to be rejected. But were they successful? Not very. (laughs) No, not very. And why were they unsuccessful? Because the writer tells us, on that cross, that cursed cross, Jesus died that he might sanctify us by his own blood. He sanctified outside the camp and made it a holy place and made it a holy thing. He died there to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Paul wrote of it and he said, 
For he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin that is to bear our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him by putting our faith in him. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That was the idea of the cross. For it is written, Paul said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is, is crucified. Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him stricken, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all that the Jewish religious leaders did, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jesus' day and accomplishing Jesus' death outside of the city was to unwittingly and forever identify him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sin sacrifice associated with the Day of Atonement. And to draw attention to the fact that Jesus has provided a salvation for mankind, not based upon the law, not based upon the temple, not based upon Levitical sacrifices or priesthood and all of the other things that are found inside of the camp, but on the basis of the cross found outside of the camp. Now, if Jesus endured all of that in order for us to provide us with salvation, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, on and on, all of these things that are ours in Christ, then what is the responsibility of ours on all of this? It is, number one, to trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins, for salvation. But then... Every time he is rejected and despised and reproached today, is it to then pretend that I don't know him or to distance myself from him so that I can have the acceptance and the applause of this world and of the people of this world? who heap their reproaches upon him. No. The writer tells us we are to go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And Jesus is still reproached today. Reproach carries the idea of discrediting or disgracing him. He is reproached by a religious world today. Judaism continues to reproach him to this very day, as does every other religious system that teaches salvation on the basis of good works 
or human effort. Because in doing that, they're declaring that Jesus' death upon the cross was unnecessary, that it was a complete waste of time and effort, that it was ineffectual for saving anyone. It is and was a nothing event. Jesus is reproached in the religious realm today every time his teachings are disavowed and replaced with something of man's wisdom. But he's not just reproached by the religious world. He's also reproached by the secular world, the non-religious world all around us. Think about the attempts at discrediting him and disgracing him that go on in public education all around this nation and indeed in much of the world. Think about he and his name and his teaching, how it's reproached and rejected and insulted continually on television and in movies and in entertainment. And I'll tell you, today he has been pushed outside the camp by religious and secular man all around us as much as he ever was by the Jews and the Romans 2,000 years ago. And that will never change. That will never change until he returns. And so the only question is this. Will he be left to endure this world's reproach alone? Or will we choose to join him outside the camp to identify ourselves with him and thus to share in bearing his reproach? And if Jesus was willing to die for our sins outside of the camp with the reproach of both religious man and secular man heaped upon him in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins and access to God, then the writer is saying, shouldn't we join him there at whatever cost, relationally, the price might be? And the answer, of course, is yes, in an instant. And not to do it out of a sense of guilt or condemnation or this is the Christian thing to do or constraint or, boy, I just... I. I wish I could have it both ways. I could have the applause of the people that have rejected Christ and reproach him on a continual basis and still know Christ. But I guess I need to go out and identify myself with Christ. There is none of that in this passage. It is filled with the sense of privilege of being able as Christians, to so identify ourselves with him that then the reproaches that were and are heaped upon him will now be heaped upon us as well. And here you have in the Bible a beautiful picture of the privilege of disgrace. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? The privilege of disgrace. And it is a privilege. It is a privilege to stand with him in this world. To identify with him 
in this world. To make that the supreme identity in my life. So that those who reproach him know that they must also reproach me in doing so. It's a privilege to stand with him in his rejection by this world. Paul wrote of it, the book of Philippians chapter 3. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He said, beware of the dogs, workers of e- beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, talking about the Judaizers. He said, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law. I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss or refuse or dung for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, for, uh, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Paul, you cannot read that without a sense of privilege in Paul to identify with Christ in this world. Not out of constraint or guilt or because it's the Christian thing to do, but that he considered sharing that kind of disgrace to be a privilege. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, for being identified with me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Elsewhere, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, Lord of the flies, how much more will they call those of his household. In other words, Jesus is saying that we must not expect the world to treat Jesus in us any differently than it treated him 2,000 years ago. And the early church, after the disciples were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, And they were threatened with beatings and persecution if they did not stop preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And we're told that 
after those threats were made upon them in Acts chapter 5, that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And wherever the religious or the secular culture relegates Jesus, then we will go there and unashamedly stand with him there. And as long as there is still one Christian left in the world, Jesus should never bear his reproach alone or without company. How does a person do that? Do we need to defend Jesus? Do we need to defend God? No, not not everyone is gifted in apologetics. What's the most effective way to bear his reproach? To continue to cling to him as our Savior and then to continue to walk with him and talk with him along life's narrow way. To not deny him but to say, where will you put my Christ? Where will you put my Lord? Will you put him in this little corner? Will you put him out in this garbage dump? Will you put him in this place or that place? Tell me in the culture, where will you relegate him to in your rejection and in your reproaching so that I can then go to that place and stand with him by not denying him in order to gain the favor of this world, but to stand by him and identify with him, whatever the cost, and to consider it to be my privilege to do so. That's what I feel toward him. And I know that's what we feel as Christians. I'm a Christian, and I believe all that he taught and I will follow him. Always remember that there is something very dark and very wrong with a person who reproaches Christ. And there is something very dark and very wrong with a world that reproaches Christ. It always reveals that there's something wrong with the person of the world. It is never a bad reflection on Christ. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers that in the rejection of Christ, even from a religious kind of camp, that there's something wrong with them. There's not anything wrong with you. And again, the world's reproach of Christ is a black mark upon the reputation 
of the world. It never is a bad reflection on him, always a bad reflection on the world. And the same thing is true of the individual. Jesus said in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus speaking. And then he says this. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not want to come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. The day will come when all reproach of Jesus whether from the religious world or the non-religious world, all reproach of Jesus will be revealed to come out of some love for darkness, some love for sin, some pride, some love for self-will that a person is unwilling to give up in order to surrender their life to Jesus and become one of his disciples. And why is that so? Because the Bible teaches there isn't one good, righteous, in the light, holy or godly reason for rejecting Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. There are only love of darkness rather than light reasons, sinful reasons, a love for darkness that is greater than the attractiveness of Christ. To the religious leaders of his day, they'd spent three and a half years putting him under the microscope. They'd watched everything Jesus ever did. They listened to every word that ever came out of his mouth. And one day Jesus posed a question to them. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you can throw a single sin in my face as a cause for rejecting me? Now, those Jewish religious leaders would have given their right arm to have heard one sin or witnessed one sin that they would have been able to throw back in Jesus' face at that moment. But you've got to give them some credit for some level of integrity because they hadn't. And at least they didn't try to make something up. They would later, but they didn't in this scene. And Jesus poses the question, which of you convicts me of sin and response to that question, complete silence. They would have done 
anything to be able to break that silence, but they couldn't break that silence. Jesus broke the silence because only he can break the silence, and he broke it with another question, and the question was this, and if I tell the truth, then why do you not believe in me? And if a person rejects Jesus and the salvation that's found in him alone, one day it's important for you to know that Jesus will pose those same questions to you. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, then why did you not believe in me? A person has to prepare to answer those questions. And there is no answer to those questions because there is no good reason for rejecting Him as my Savior and as my Lord. He loves every single person in this world, but He cannot ignore our sin. And faith in Him, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sins is the means by which we are saved and receive that forgiveness. He closes finally by reminding us in verse 14 that we have no continuing city here. In other words, we are to remember that this world is not our home, but that heaven is our home. Said of Abraham back in Hebrews chapter 11, that he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that reminder that here we are, this is, life is a vapor. This is so short, such a short season even to bear Christ's reproach. Isn't it interesting that one day when we are in heaven, we will never have the opportunity to share in that privilege again. Never again. In heaven, there will be no reproach. It will just be unending praise and worship and glory and honor directed toward Him. This is the season, the lone season that we have of bearing His reproach and identifying him with Him in a way that costs us something. In heaven, it will cost us nothing. There will be no rejection there of Christ. There will be no reproach of Christ there, nor for us. Better to be reproached here and loved there than to be loved here and reproached there. As Paul said to the Romans, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And what a time it's going to be. And it's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. And how indescribably happy and joy-filled we will be 
in that scene because in this life we chose to say to the world that we live in, where will you relegate him? Where will you dismiss him? What corner will you put him in? What place of rejection so that I might go to that place myself and stand by his side? That's our privilege today. And how indescribably happy and joyous, joy-filled we will be in that day that we stood with him in such a way in the middle of this world that yet reproaches him in such a great measure. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to leave the glory of heaven to come into this sinful and sin-filled world and then to die in that disgraceful place outside the camp that we might be saved and forgiven. Jesus, we think about the quality of our life as your disciples. We are so thankful. We cannot put into words what all that is ours because of you means to us. Just peace alone is overwhelming. And we thank you, Jesus, for the privilege of being able in this short season in eternity to be able to stand with you in a scene of rejection that will one day disappear like a vapor. The opportunity will be gone We thank you for the privilege of disgrace when, Lord, we get to stand with you. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible... God wants everyone to own a Bible. We want everybody to own a Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. 
Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that that is a truth and a fact that none of us need ever doubt. And Lord, in your love, you have given us this amazing book, the book, your book, Lord, for us to learn about you, learn about your ways, to study it, to read it, to obey it, Lord, and then to enjoy the amazing life that unfolds with you as we do. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, and by your Spirit you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak through these handful of verses into our Christian life and relationship with you, And then, Lord, into the hearts of the men and women that you created and you love so much that stand before you right now that have not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, that something of what happens here this morning would cause them to realize their need and then come to surrender to you today and enter into the rich and abundant life that you have planned for them. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that this book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were enduring tremendous persecution and tremendous hardship for the simple reason they had chosen to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they had committed their life to following him and obeying him. And because the hardship and the persecution had reached um, such a, a, a critical mass, had become so great, they were now being tempted to abandon their commitment to Christ in order to find some relief from the persecution and the trials and the hardship. On top of the difficulty and the persecution and hardship, they were also experiencing a very, very painful rejection by fellow Jews who refused to trust in Jesus for salvation. They chose rather to stay with kind of the security of the old ways. And they were calling on these Christians during this time of vulnerability, uh, this time of, uh, of difficulty in their life, and trying to pull them back into the old ways. But to go back into the old ways would have required a renouncing of Christ. And this letter was written to them to encourage them and to exhort them to never, ever do such a thing, not under any circumstances, No matter what the rejection, no matter how hard the trials, no matter how great the persecution, rejecting Christ or walking away from Christ and our commitment to Him is not on the table as Christians. And in these verses, the Holy Spirit encourages us 
and also exhorts us and them not to be troubled or to be moved by the rejection of men, whether that rejection occurs from religious circles or secular, that is, non-religious circles, uh, because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. In this vein, you notice in verse 10, he reminded them and us of our privilege. When he declares, we have an altar by the Spirit of God, this is a proclamation of joy, of thanksgiving. The writer of the book of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is excited to write that down on a page, is excited. The Holy Spirit is excited for people like you and me to read it in our Bibles every day or for someone like me to preach it, to say those words, we have an altar. And the Holy Spirit reminds them and us that we have an altar as Christians that even those who served in the tabernacle and later in the temple, be they Levites, be they the Jewish priests, or be they the high priest himself, they, that they in those positions and who serve in those positions, we have an altar that even those in the highest positions of Judaism, the most highly revered persons in Judaism, have no right to eat. Why? Because we're better than them? No. But because of their rejection of Jesus as the Christ. Now, what is this altar that the writer is referring to here? Well, first, I think it's important to understand a little bit about what the altar represented under the Old Covenant. It was known in the Old Testament as the, the, the altar referred to in the Old Testament was known there as the altar of burnt offerings. And it was called the altar of burnt offerings because every single day, morning and evening, a sacrifice was offered on that altar and it was burnt on that altar and completely consumed. One of the unique characteristics of the burnt offering under that Old Testament covenant was that no part of the animal was removed for food or for any other purposes. It was burned entirely on that altar because it communicated the worshiper's desire that his or her life would be completely consecrated to God, that no portion of our lives would not be on the altar, that no portion of our lives would not be available to God to consume and use however he sees fit, whenever he sees fit, wherever he sees fit in this whole wide world. Now, the altar was kind of a significant furnishing in the Old Testament. It was seven and a half feet uh, wide. It was seven and a half feet uh, deep. That's pretty good barbecue. And it was four and a half feet high. So very significant furnishing there. The altar was used not only to offer up the burnt offering, but also it was used for all kinds of different offerings, Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, the sin offerings, trespass offerings, all of these were offered on that altar of burnt offering. If you were at the time of Moses 
and the tabernacle, this great tent that represented the presence of God, if you were to walk into the courtyard that would lead you to that tabernacle or later into the temple, and it had a courtyard as well, you would walk into this great wide open space that was between the entrance into the courtyard and the tabernacle itself. And the first great obstacle that you would face between you and getting to that tabernacle, to the presence of God, would be this altar uh, of, of burnt offering. And it, that altar reminded everyone that God can be approached by sinful man solely on the basis of sacrifice. It taught and communicated to man in visual language that our sin cannot be casually ignored by God. It must be soberly faced. And then it has to be dealt with in the way of God's choosing, not in the way of our choosing or on our own terms. What the various offerings that were offered on that altar represented, the sin offering would be offered on that altar And that sin offering, when it was offered by a person, it represented a person's desire to be forgiven of their sins by God. Again, the burnt offering, when they would bring that offering, a person would bring that to the priest. It would be sacrificed and burnt on that altar. It was a person saying, God, I not only want to be saved and forgiven, but I also want to live a holy life. I want to live a life different from the life that I've ever lived before. I want to live the life that you have planned for me. And then there was the grain offering that would, where they would take the early part of their harvest and then they would have that offered up on the altar. And it was a way of saying to God, God, I recognize that everything that I have that keeps me alive physically has come from you. You meet my physical needs. And it was a means of praising and thanking God for doing that. The peace offering represented the desire of the worshiper for peace with God, the desire to have a peace-based relationship with God. But when the Holy Spirit declares in verse 10, we have an altar referring to Jesus, it is again spoken by the writer in, in a sense of praise, with a sense of joy, and the idea, in it, because it does refer to Jesus, Jesus is our altar, and it's referring to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins, but also to all that is ours because of his death upon the cross for us. Think about what we have as Christians, way beyond forgiveness of sins, because we have made Jesus our Savior. Think of the priceless things that are part of all of our lives because of what He did on the cross for us, dying on that altar, so to speak. All of the things that are ours because of Calvary. In Him, as we use the imagery of the Old Testament offerings, in Him we have a sin offering that doesn't merely cover our sins, but washes our sins away, separates it from us so completely that we will never come into contact or bear judgment for that sin, not in this life or the rest, all of the life to come. In Him, 
And because of Him, we're not only forgiven, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to live a burnt offering life, a living sacrifice, to live a life that is holy and separated unto God. And we have in Him not only a shepherd and a Savior who takes care of us physically and meets our physical hungers, but as the bread of life, He satisfies every hunger that we have spiritually. He satisfies every hunger that we have spiritually. You think about your journey to come to know the Lord, those of you who know the Lord, and we come to know Him because we're off here, wine, women, song, the equivalent version today, sex, drugs, rock and roll, education, this, the search is going on. I have a sense that there's something more to life than what I've already experienced. Life hasn't satisfied me. My belly is full, but my spirit is dead. There must be something more to life than what I have experienced. And then we come to Christ and we give our life to Him. We begin a relationship with Him after the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And none of us looks and says, when I came to Christ, He satisfied 80% of that spiritual hunger in my life or 85%. Everything that we needed to satisfy the spiritual hunger in our life was fully satisfied when we gave our life to Christ. And now we live the rest of our life growing in a greater measure to enjoying and participating in all of those things, realizing what we have. Not only a shepherd who keeps us fed with daily bread each day, but meets the needs that only God can meet in our life, our spiritual needs, and His sacrifice has made available to us a peace-based relationship with God that the Old Testament saints could hardly have dreamed of. Again, we have an altar. We have an access to God through Jesus that even the Levites, the priests, even the high priest did not have an access that they did not have to God because of their rejection of Christ. And the writer is kind of saying to these readers and saying to us, yes, the human rejection that you're facing is hard, it is painful, but if in order to gain the acceptance of these people, I must walk away from the forgiveness of my sins, the power to live a holy life, the spiritual satisfaction that Christ has brought into my life, peace in my relationship with God, then that is a price that is way, way too high. In verses 11 through 13, he then reminds them that being faithful to Jesus in this fallen world that we live in very often results in reproach, it results in rejection, it results in us being made to feel the outsider, to actually be made an outsider within our own families, in our own workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever it might be, that to be faithful to Jesus often results in that in terms of losing out on the world's applause and its approval and its acceptance. I want you to notice 
in those three verses, 11 through 13, that word outside is used three times. Verse 11, outside the camp. Verse 12, outside the gate. Verse 13, outside the camp. On the Day of Atonement, the Jewish, the single greatest and holiest day, Yom Kippur, of the Jewish religious calendar, the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed as sin offerings, the bull for the priest and his family, and then the goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the nation as a whole, those sacrifices were never burned on the altar of incense or on the, the brazen altar in the courtyard. Why all of these other sacrifices burned on that altar, but on the Day of Atonement, the bull that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of the priests to cleanse him and make him ceremonially clean enough to then offer the goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, why were those two sacrifices not burned on that altar, but after their blood was shed, the blood applied to the tabernacle, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant, why were the entirety of their bodies then taken outside of the camp of the Jews, and those bodies were then burned outside the camp? And this term outside the camp is used repeatedly in the Old Testament. Lepers were commanded to live outside of the camp. You remember Moses' sister Miriam when she led kind of a rebellion against Moses, his authority. God smote her for a short period of time with leprosy and she was forced to live outside of the camp as a result of her leprosy. Any Jew who became ceremonially unclean due to a discharge or contact with a dead body, they were put outside of the camp until they became ceremonially clean again. All garbage was taken outside of the camp. Dung was taken outside of the camp. And because of that, the phrase outside the camp was considered to be a place of disgrace, a place of rejection, the place for the unclean. And the writer reminds us that Jesus suffered and died, verse 12, outside the gate. That is, outside the gate of the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem at that time. And the Apostle John makes a great point in his gospel of telling us that Jesus was crucified near the city, not inside the city, but outside of the city. Why did the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day want him to be crucified outside of the city walls? Because it was their way of making their utter and complete rejection of Jesus known to the entire Jewish and Gentile world and the strongest language possible. It was their declaration to the whole world that in their estimation they considered Jesus to be unclean, refuse, garbage, dung. 
And it was their attempt to permanently and irretrievably destroy his message, his memory, his reputation, so that from that point on in human history that the name of Jesus would forever and always in the minds of people be associated with shame and reproach and a curse and that forever and ever his life would be an example of what is to be avoided and not followed, rejected and not followed. And how successful were they? Not very. Praise the Lord, not very. And why were they unsuccessful? Because on that cross, that cursed cross, Jesus died, the Holy Spirit tells us, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. He died on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit put it this way through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, for he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin. Think about it. Who knew no sin to become sin, to bear our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Paul wrote in a way that maybe only a Jew and a former Pharisee could put it in writing to the churches in Galatia, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And he writes, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He's speaking of Jesus. Is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all that the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day did in accomplishing his death outside of the city was to unwittingly and forever identify him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sin sacrifice associated with the Day of Atonement and to draw attention to the fact that Jesus has provided a salvation for mankind not based upon the law of Moses, not based upon the temple, not based upon the Levitical priesthoods or, or sacrifices and all of the other things that are found inside the camp, but on the basis of the cross found outside of the camp. 
And the writer then implies, now if Jesus endured all of that in order to provide us with salvation, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, on and on we could go, then what is our responsibility in all of this? The first responsibility is to trust in Him for our salvation. But then, every time He is rejected and despised and reproached today, are we to then pretend that we don't know Him, to distance ourselves from Him so that I can gain the acceptance and the applause and the approval of family or friends or this world, the very world that heaps their reproaches on him? And the answer is no. The writer tells us that we are to go forth to him outside the camp and we are to bear his reproach. And Jesus' reproach to this day, the reproach carries the idea of discrediting or disgracing him. He's reproached by the religious world. Judaism reproaches him yet today, as does every other religious system in the world that teaches that salvation is on the basis of works or human effort, because in doing so, they are declaring that Jesus' death upon the cross was unnecessary, that it was a complete waste of his time and of his effort, that what he did on the cross is ineffectual for salvation or for anything, that it was and is a nothing event. And Jesus is reproached in the religious realm today every time his teachings are disavowed and replaced with something of man's wisdom. But he isn't just reproached by the religious world. He's also reproached by the secular, the non-religious world today, and perhaps most fiercely reproached by that group. You think of the attempts at discrediting him or disgracing him that go on continually in the public education all over this nation and indeed in much of the world, where he and his name and his teaching is reproached and rejected and insulted continually, not just in education, but in entertainment and in television and in movies. No opportunity is lost to mock him. And today he's been pushed outside the camp by the religious and the secular world all around us as much as he ever was by the Jews and the Romans 2,000 years ago. And that will never change. That will never change until he returns. And the only question that remains is will he be left to endure the world's reproach alone or will we choose to join him outside the camp 
and to identify ourselves with him, whatever the cost might be, and to bear his reproach as well. And if Jesus is willing to die for our sins outside of the camp with the reproach of both religious and secular man heaped upon him in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins and access to God, then the writer says, shouldn't we be willing to join him there? And the answer is yes, in an instant. In an instant. And the writer calls upon them and us to bear the reproach of Christ, the reproach that the whole world heaps upon him, and calls upon us to bear his reproach not as some weighty thing that we do or some difficult thing that we do or to do it out of a sense of guilt or I suppose this is the Christian thing that I ought to do. But he calls on us to do it not with constraint but with fil- to be filled with a sense of privilege for being able to do so. I tell you, I count it a privilege to identify with Christ. And I can't begin to tell you what that has cost me in terms of human relationships. But you bundle all of them together and nothing compares with what I receive out of that relationship. And what you have here and what the writer is calling us to, you have the privilege of disgrace. And it's a privilege to be disgraced in this world when it is to share his disgrace and to share his reproach. It is a privilege to stand by him, whatever the religious or secular world thinks of him, to identify with him in his rejection in this world. And that sense of privilege wasn't lost on the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he said, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, talking about the Judaizers. And then he goes on to say this, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss or as refuse for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of 
all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness that is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Of the privilege of this disgrace, Jesus spoke and said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And later in his ministry, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, speaking of himself, Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, we should not expect the world to treat Christ in us any differently than it treated Christ 2,000 years ago. The early church, when the disciples were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, these same Jewish religious leaders, and they were threatened with physical violence if they did not stop preaching this Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And they were released and were told in Acts chapter 5 that when they released, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wherever the religious or the secular culture relegates Jesus... Whatever little place they give him in the culture or in the religious system or whatever place they relegate him to outside of the camp, then we will go there and unashamedly stand with him there. And as long as there's one Christian in this world... Christ should never have to stand alone and bear his reproach in this world by such people. You say, how do we do it? How do we bear his reproach? I'll go out and take a thousand classes on apologetics and defend him. God does not need our defense. And very few people are gifted in apologetics. What's the greatest way? What's the most powerful way, the most meaningful way, the most influential way to bear his reproach in a culture that still reproaches him as much as ever? It is to continue to believe in him and to continue to follow him and to continue to obey him no matter how great or how thick or how dark the reproach becomes. And when God's people stick with him, 
despite however Christ is treated, whatever stigma they attempt to attach to him, whatever is said of him, it speaks to the whole world that it has no effect upon us who are filled with the Holy Spirit and know him to not be the things that they claim him to be. Someone says, I'm not a powerful person in this world as a Christian. I'm not the president of this, the head of this. I'm not the dean of this or the dean of that. What powerful means am I given to bear his reproach and be a witness for him? Just continue your relationship with him. No matter how badly they paint him, no matter what they say about him, what lies are attached to him, what stigma is borne by the person who continues to follow him, we continue to follow him. And in doing so, we bear his reproach, but we stand as a strong and powerful and influential light against the lies that are spoken against him and the disrespect that is shown to him as he is continually put outside of the camp, outside of the acceptance and the applause and the approval of this world. And always remember, there is something very dark and there is something very wrong with a person who reproaches Christ. And that there is something very dark and very wrong with a world that reproaches Christ. Just know that. Understand that. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with them. And the world's reproach of Jesus is never a bad reflection upon Jesus, but always a bad reflection upon the world. And an individual's rejection and reproach of Jesus is never a bad reflection on Jesus. It always reflects poorly on the person who rejects and reproaches him, always. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus said, he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And then here he says it. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's what's behind all rejection of Christ and all reproach of Christ. But Jesus went on to say, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen 
that they have been done in God. The day is coming, my friend, when all reproach of Jesus will be revealed to have come out of a love for darkness. A day is coming when all rejection of Christ is going to be revealed as having a moral darkness as its source in a human heart. Some love for sin that a person is unwilling to give up in order to become a follower of Christ. Some pride, some self-will, some arrogance in terms of our own self-importance and our own ideas in comparison to God's. that a person is unwilling to give up in order to surrender their life to Jesus and become one of his disciples. And why is darkness at the core of all reproach and rejection? And the reason it is is because there isn't one good, righteous, in the light, holy, or godly reason for rejecting him as my Savior and my Lord. The only reasons for rejecting him are a love of darkness rather than light reasons, sinful reasons. And all this nonsense that goes on in seminaries. I can't tell you how many people I've had either them come to me or I've had the parents come to me say, my son went off to seminary to become a minister. And by the time they got done with him, he'd lost his faith. They'd so complicated the Christian life, so messed things up. Recently I had a woman come to me and She's crying and she's weeping. She said, my son went to seminary, came back and said, I don't believe in him the way that you believe in him. It's all become too complicated. It's not simple anymore. And she said, he's the one who led me to Christ. I said, you hold on to your simple faith. God will bring your son back to that. It's a simple thing that God has called us to. But one day, all of the reproach and all of the rejection, even from the secular world that's heaped upon Christ, and they give the illusion that it's these deep intellectual problems that people have and this and that and all those things. It is all darkness. It is the darkness of the human heart that is trying to justify themselves and their rejection of Christ. And they must besmirch Him and reproach Him in order to do so. Jesus was speaking to a group of religious leaders. They'd watched His life for three and a half years, like under a microscope. They watched everything He did. They listened to everything that He had said. And he spoke to them, and he asked them a simple question. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? In other words, which of you 
has witnessed me either speak anything that was sinful or do anything sinful, any cause of rejecting me. Which of you convicts me of sin? He spoke to these religious leaders. They would have given their right arm to have witnessed one sin in his life, to have been able to throw that back into his face. But because they hadn't, when Jesus posed the question, their response was silence. They couldn't break the silence. They'd have given anything they had to be able to break that silence with an accusation. And Jesus posing that question then breaks the silence himself. How long did he make them wait under that silence? I don't know. The Bible is silent on it. But enough to make them realize they have no reason for rejecting him, much less reproaching him as they were. And when they couldn't answer the one question, he then posed a second question to them. He said, and if I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? And if you reject Jesus and the salvation that is found in him alone, then one day he will pose the same two questions to you. And you will fare no better than they did. You'll one day stand before him and he'll say, which of you convicts me of sin? And just try And find a sin to throw back in his face. You won't be able to do it. And then he will pose the question, then why didn't you believe the things that I said? The Lord loves you. But you alone can invite him into your heart. He closes the passage in verse 14 by reminding us that we have no continuing city here. In other words, we are to remember that this world is not our home, but heaven is our home. Like Abraham, we look for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Heaven is our home. And in heaven, there'll be no rejection there. There'll be no reproach there. It's an interesting season that we live in. One day when we are in heaven, there'll be no rejection of him. There'll be no reproach of him. In that heavenly scene, it will just be praise and glory and worship and honor forever and ever and ever and ever directed unto him without interruption. In that day, we will have lost our opportunity to bear his reproach because there will be no reproach there. The only time that we have to be obedient to this passage, to experience the privilege of this disgrace is in this life. 
And it is an honor. And it is a privilege. And one day when we get into heaven itself and we how indescribably happy we will be for the fact that we stood with Jesus and identified with him outside the camp, whatever outside the camp was in our t- season in human history. As Paul relate, speaks concerning the heaven to come, and he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Matt made an announcement earlier, Pastor Matt did, concerning the seniors ministry, 50 and above. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) But there are some things some advantages to growing older. All of them spiritual. And one of the great things is to walk with the Lord and to live for Him and to grow older with Him in this context and to realize that there is no approval, there is no applause, there is no acceptance from anyone that I want or I need in this world from my family on out if it comes at the expense of denying him and failing to bear his reproach in this season of life which is the lone season in which I have the privilege of doing that. And I know that it's true of so many of you as well. I don't say it's true of everyone because I don't know everyone's heart. It is a privilege to bear his reproach, to be identified with him and the world, to treat me the way that it treats him, and to heap whatever they want to heap on him, on me as well. It is a badge of honor. Not just one day when I'm on that glassy sea. I've walked with the Lord long enough now and seen enough of the world long enough now that it's a badge of honor now and today. And I give him praise and we give him praise for the privilege. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Jesus, we thank you for doing the far greater thing than we have the opportunity and the privilege of doing. We thank you for your willingness to leave the unspeakable and incomparable glory and beauty and holiness of heaven 
to come into the fallenness and the unholiness of this world. And then beyond that, to allow both secular and religious man to treat you in the way that they did and to relegate you to a place outside of the camp and willing to do all of it out of the knowledge that simple people like us would one day come to value our soul and long for forgiveness and a relationship with you and our Heavenly Father. And we thank you for all that you were willing to endure, Lord, and the reproach that you are yet willing to endure, to have supplied that to mankind and introduced it into human history and made it available to us. We give you praise. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, for the privilege of disgrace in this world. When disgrace becomes standing with you. Thank you, Lord, that when a world becomes what it is becoming around us by the day, that we can leave that camp, that there's an alternative to that camp and the darkness of it and the bondage of it and the disgustingness of it. Thank you for finding and providing a place for us outside of the camp to know you and to walk with you, Lord. And we just let you know today that we don't obey you or associate you with you or identify with you out of any constraint or some kind of guilt or condemnation. We want you to know that we count it an honor and a privilege to do so. Thank you for the honor and the privilege of being our Lord and being our Savior. We give you all praise and honor and glory this morning for your grace in all of this. And we do so in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.